Good morning to everyone. This morning we want to conclude what we were looking at last week and then get into the new passage in Romans chapter 13. And before we get started, why don't we have Bill open in a word of prayer for us. Father God, we are amazed and grateful at the effort uh, that you put into getting us your word. Thousands of years um, carefully preserving every copy. Father, we just are so grateful that you have, have transmitted to us the very words of God. Holy Spirit, we ask you to do the teaching today. Reach through the material, reach through our discussion, and we ask that you, you transform who we are close to the image of Christ this study of the word that you wrote. We are grateful for this time, and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, our focus today are the citizens of the culture that we live in. And in the first century, Paul addressed a culture, a Roman culture, that there were some believers that obviously lived there. And their situation, we've been saying over and over, that their situation was far more dire than ours. But yet, they were called upon to submit to the governing authorities. So let me just kind of conclude our discussion on government that ran through the first seven verses. And then we'll focus beginning in verse 8. And we should be able to get through verse 10, 8 through 10 today. And look at uh, the broader relationship to the culture or to the society. And the focus there, I see, as loving the citizens. And this was the exhortation of Paul to the Roman citizens in the first century. And all of this is within the portion that we call application, to give the broader context here, beginning in chapter 12. And I've been stressing that uh, the only way that we can accomplish any of the applications that uh, we have in 12 through the middle of 15 is if we have already set our minds on uh, the relationship between us and God, and that is a relationship of submitting actually to dying to self and sacrificing ourselves on an altar to God, a living sacrifice ready for life, ready for action. And if we are in fellowship, that's Paul's way of emphasizing remaining in fellowship, remaining connected, remaining in God's will, then uh, we are in a place to be able to have an impact and live the Christian life within the body of Christ, beginning in verse 3 through 21. So I think he's applying the principles of chapters 1 through 11, primarily the working out of Christianity amongst the church in that portion. And we're still in chapter 13, how it's worked out in relationship to society. What does it look like? What does living for Christ as a living sacrifice look like? amongst the, the, the broader culture, the broader society we live in. And he starts with that relationship to government, and then he broadens it to, I think, 
more than government, the the people itself or the citizens, we might describe it. And then when we complete that, we will look at Christian liberty, chapters 14 through about the middle of chapter 15, 15, 13. So that kind of gives you the broader context. In outline form, we're talking about the application to God, application to the church, application to society, chapter 13. We've completed looking at the first seven verses of 13, submission to authority. So I'm not going to go over any of those. But what I'd like to conclude on is kind of the perspective of the future and that ultimate hope, that future hope. That's how I've kind of given you a little bit of an outline within an outline there to uh, give us a focus. So no matter how bad, no matter how evil the leaders are, and no matter the circumstances that we live in, the Lord always encourages us to focus. In fact, Bible prophecy, by the way, finds a lot of its setting amongst people that are suffering. Some of the Old Testament passages were written while the children of Israel were about to enter into exile. Daniel and Ezekiel, Ezekiel portions while the children of Israel were in exile. In other words, suffering under foreign powers, evil powers. So Bible prophecy is intended to give us that future perspective so that we can endure whatever government, whatever situation, whatever circumstance we might find ourselves in today. So, regardless of how we might even disagree with the leaders and the policies that we find ourselves under, in fact, before most of you signed on, Stuart in Australia was relating the situation there under essentially, uh, what was the word that you described, Stuart? Um... Leftist. Leftist governments governments leaning towards not only socialism, but control and uh, even totalitarianism. So that's the whole concept of verses 1 through 7. We are to submit regardless of the governing authorities. We looked at some exceptions, and I gave you two. One exception is when the governing authorities command us to go against the clear things that we know are God's will, and or the second one is when we are commanded to do those things that are clearly prohibited by what uh, Scripture teaches us. And those are kind of broad, but in terms of broad categories. So there are not too many areas that are outside of those two categories, but uh, I think that pretty much summarizes in general the biblical teaching, at least that's the way I see it anyway, unless you can call some specific passages to attention. Uh, We covered some of those. So let's take a look at this ultimate hope, ultimate government, as I call it. And, And by the way, last time I didn't, we could have gotten into a lot of political areas. We kind of touched on some of them kind of broadly, but I've done a lot of, well, I don't know a lot, but I've done some study in terms of ideology, and I put together a couple of sheets that might be helpful if you're interested in them, kind of a biblical 
evaluation of progressivism and or liberalism. And if you're interested in them, I can send them to you separately. Just email me and let me know and I'll make sure you get them. And another one that kind of gives a perspective on uh, the two major ideologies that we deal with in our, our country, conservatism versus progressivism, I guess you could say. But anyway, back to the ultimate hope. What does ultimate government look like? In other words, God has a plan and he's working it out. God's intention, beginning with Genesis 1, verse 28, one of the purposes of mankind is to subdue and rule the earth. Now, that was given to Adam and Eve. That was their responsibility. And as their descendants would come, then uh, that was the intention for all of humanity. And I think God intended to use his people. And we see that God established a kingdom in the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel. But throughout scripture, because man is sinful, including even uh, those that have been regenerated, we still have a sin nature. Even though David was a king after God's own heart, he still was a sinner. And his descendant, uh, Solomon, was with like nature. And at that point, God was ruling the world through the nation of Israel. But because of the sinfulness of man and the sinfulness of the citizens, Israel collapsed as a nation. And we await the establishment of a future ultimate kingdom with the sinless king reigning and regenerated people populating that, that kingdom. So let's take a look at some of these passages that deal with that. Now, we mentioned that it seems like within the heart of man, there's a desire for a utopian, all-encompassing government. And there have been a lot of counterfeits, in other words, attempts to consolidate that rule. So man has an inward sense of rulership, but because of sin, it is always perverted and it is always corrupted. And we've seen a lot of counterfeits beginning in Babel, where there's a desire for a united utopian government. And Babel was the first example of a united effort. But it was contrary to God. God wanted the peoples to fill the earth and spread. So we have the confusing of the languages. And then after Babel, and then we have the, the rising of the nations that last time I tried to convey the idea that uh, I think nations are God's design until we can come to this ultimate government. And uh, one of the purposes of nations is to kind of hold each of them in check so that uh, power is not concentrated into one small group. So totalitarian government is the outcome of man's effort to unite and trying to consolidate. And uh, the examples after Babel, you can go through a long list of the Egyptian empire, totalitarian, the Assyrian empire, totalitarian. And under all of these governments, people are oppressed, power is abused, 
mankind uh, loses freedom, man is in desperate situations in some situations. The Babylonians are another example that destroyed the nation of Israel, the Medo-Persian that uh, destroyed them similarly, perhaps not as evil as Babylon, Greece, Rome. And then there's going to be an ultimate one before actually this ultimate one following a future totalitarian, some describe it as a revived Roman Empire during the Great Tribulation. But it will fail as well. That one will be headed by Antichrist, and it'll be totalitarian, and it'll be oppressive. And most of the people that become believers during that time will die. They will be martyred. Lots of beheadings that are described even in the book of uh, Revelation. So man fails ultimately at government. No matter the type, no matter the form, it uh, anticipates and awaits what God will establish. So let's look up some of these passages. And I'd like for some of you, Jim, did you have a comment before we look these up? Well, I'd like for you to comment on, uh, you know, even in the in the millennium, there are still nations. Yes. So, uh, you want to comment on... on? Uh, yes, I'll, I'll get to that. Okay. Yeah, and it's a good point. There are still nations. In fact, uh, nations even exist in the eternal state. There's a mention in Revelation 22, I think it's verse 5, if somebody may want to look that up. But let's look these up, first of all. What God is doing in history and is not there yet, it's not accomplished, but this is part of the goal. And somebody, Stuart, you got Philippians 3.21? Yep. And From the NIV, it is, uh, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Okay, the subjecting, and there's your word, the subjecting of all things to Christ. So uh, God is in the process of subjecting things throughout world history, and we do it voluntarily. Laurel, I saw your mic pop open. Were you going to read the Hebrews 2 passage, or did you just inadvertently, I don't see you. No, I'll turn it back on. Because of my okay. And Connie, I'll have you read First Peter three twenty two. Looks like your mic is open, but go ahead, Laurel. Hebrews two eight. Hebrews is writing in the first century, not all has been subjected yet, but that's the ultimate goal. And then 1 Peter 3.22, Connie, you got that one. Right. In 21, it references Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Okay. And that's where he resides now, at the right hand, and he's in the process of bringing things under subjection. And when that is completed, or at least partially completed, 
he will return and uh, begin the process of completing the subjection of all things, and he will rule in the millennial kingdom, and he will be that millennial sinless king without a sin nature, and he will rule initially over the nation of Israel. We'll look at a couple of passages relating to that. And also, there's going to be a hierarchy of rulership within that millennial kingdom, but this will be an ideal government. And Christ will rule. The well-known passage, would somebody, Norman, do you have that one? Isaiah 9. And there's, there's many, by the way. Would somebody else, I don't have it on the screen there, but somebody look up Luke 1. Do you have Isaiah 9, 6 and 7? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Stop there, stop there. That's the incarnation, and within the same sentence, the same prophecy, we have the incarnation, and then we have, it's not specified there, but given the other passages of the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have a return or a second coming of that son. So keep reading. Okay, Um, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth, even forever. The Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Okay, that's a description of the reign, and this is a messianic passage, and will be fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. The first part was. Now, Janie, do you have that Luke 1 passage? Yes, what uh, verse? 32 and 33. This is before Jesus is born. This is a prophetic statement concerning the coming birth in the birth narratives of the Lord Jesus. Read it. Okay. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord will give him, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Okay, that's Jesus. That's before the baby Jesus is even born. And uh, notice these passages stress righteousness and uh, goodness and reigning. And in the book of Revelation, we won't look it up, but if you want to jot it down, in 1916, he will be king of kings and lord of lords. So he will reign in the millennial kingdom. There'll be a government And there will also be, in fact, I should have put within that, the passage that Jeff was... No, and I was actually referring to a passage in Ezekiel, not Daniel. Yeah, Ezekiel 34, right? Do you have it handy? I don't have have that one handy. I actually have a different topic, a different verse on the topic of nations uh, existing during the millennium. There is also Revelation chapter 20, verses uh, yeah. 7, yeah. 7, 
where the devil is released and he deceives the nations. Right. And this is the end of a thousand year reign to demonstrate the ultimate failure of humanity and mankind. But for a thousand years, there's going to be this ideal, ultimate, earthly government on earth. The David passage, there's a couple of them. There's Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24. There's also Jeremiah 30, verse 9. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now remember, Jeremiah is written many years after David lived, and here's a prophecy of God raising him up. And the hierarchy, I think David will reign under the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will rule the nation of Israel. But notice, would somebody look up, I think Steve was looking something up. You want to look up 2 Timothy 2.12. Steve, you got your mic open. And in the meantime, who wants to look up Revelation 2.26 and 27? Hey, Ray, on the uh, the David verses, there's also Ezekiel 37.25. Okay. Uh, David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Okay, that's the one you were referring to. Great. Yeah, a clear passage that David is going to rule in the millennial kingdom. At least three there. Steve, do you have Second Timothy 2.12? Yes, Second uh, Timothy 2.12. Uh, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Okay. Now, that passage has nothing to do with losing one's salvation. That passage, if you read the context, has everything to do with living out the Christian life faithfully. The book of Revelation calls the believers overcomers. It is important how we live now. If we live faithfully now, we're promised that we will also rule with him. If we do not live faithfully The denial is we will lose the opportunity to have a a rulership. That doesn't mean that we will not be citizens of the millennial kingdom, but that's what it means when it talks about losing one's reward. So it's important how we live. Somebody look up Revelation 2, 26 through 27. Yeah, Ray, Denise has Revelation for us. Great. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. Okay, there's another reference to the nations. And the reference is to this future rule. And by the way, there's several passages that indicate that. Earlier, I inadvertently read Daniel 7.27 that talks about Israelites in the Old Testament having a part in the millennial kingdom. And in fact, even it says sovereignty and power uh, handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. In that context, uh, Israel is referenced, so Israelites will be a part of this kingdom and even a part of the rulership, but the church and believers will have a part in ruling over the nations. So, dependent on one's faithfulness, 
During the millennial kingdom, there'll be a rulership delegated to the the believers. Hey, Ray. Steve. Okay, so you just referenced the nations. What do you mean by nations in this context? Non-Jewish people, and in most contexts, when it's translated nations, it refers to the different tongues, different national entities, different different ethnicities, you might even say. So there's a plan for the nations in the future, in the millennial kingdom, and even the Revelation 22, 5 passage, if that's the right verse, or 3 maybe. Another reference is a reference to the eternal state. So this is the ultimate government that you and I will actually be administrators to the extent that we are faithful here and now. And then after all of world history is completed, we have another passage. We have a couple of comments. Joe, did you have a comment? And then Stuart. I had a question about the nations. Uh, I was uh, thinking that that, um, that that term generally, you can correct me, but I thought it referred generally to non-Jewish ethnic groups or or nations, like the word implies as uh, kingdoms or empires or whatever, but primarily non-Jewish Yes. opposed to the Jews. Yes, I think I, I mentioned that. So it's going to include, I think, believers of the past and believers in the church age w- within these nations I think people will keep ethnicity, for example, identity. Your your identity will not be blotted out. And God is going to use people from different groups. And by the way, the Hebrew word is goyim. And if you read context, it will either be translated Gentiles and or nations. And the New Testament word is eth, what is it, ethne, referring to the same uh, same concept. Uh, what was I going to say now? Um, now, those nations, you can also read Matthew chapter 25. And the, the, third, there's the third parable there is a description of the end of the tribulation period and the separating of the sheep and the goats. And clearly, in that parable, it identifies... Nations, God judging the nations and the believers will enter the millennial kingdom and the unbelievers will essentially die. They'll be judged. Now they'll come back to life at the great white throne, but uh, they will not be a part of the millennial kingdom. Only believers will enter the millennial kingdom. And the first two parables pertain to the nation of Israel. So there's a distinction always maintained And those two parables, again, will be an evaluation of those that enter the kingdom and those that are faithful. In other words, they'll be given responsibilities. And only at the beginning of the millennial kingdom will there be all 100% regenerated citizens with the sinless Messiah as reigning over King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But over time, this will be earthly. This will be physical. 
They will be in mortal bodies. We will reign in spiritual bodies because we will be resurrected. So there's going to be two kinds of people. And over a period of a thousand years, people will have babies. The mortal believers will have babies. They will have to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ just like everybody else. And it, we don't have a lot of detail, but the book of Revelation by way of implication, indicates by the end of the millennial kingdom, there will be enough unbelievers that when Satan is released, remember he's bound at the beginning, there'll be no satanic temptation. The only thing that'll exist, and it'll be an ideal government, the only thing that'll exist will be the fallen nature of those mortals that uh, entered the kingdom and they had babies and those babies will have to uh, make a uh, commitment to Christ. They will have to believe on him, but there'll be enough that there will be a re rebellion at the end, which, which kind of seals to us the depravity of man. In other words, man is ultimately responsible for his own sin. Can't blame it on Satan. Can't blame it on your neighborhood. Can't blame it on the country you grew up in. And then you have the great white throne judgment. So that's ultimate government. And after that, let's see, Stuart had a question or a comment. Yeah, just a comment on, um, on the way that God orders these things, not only here, but in the millennium. But it's always fascinated me in the eternal state. In Revelation 21, I'd just like you to comment on it because um, it, it fascinates me. It's talking about the eternal city in verse 23, but in 24 it says, And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So even there, there's a sort of inference of, of uh, governmental hierarchy in the eternal state. Yes, at least in terms of identification, you might say, at least, and perhaps more. Now, it's not clear. We don't have the eternal state apparently is so beyond our comprehension that even the passages that we have are not detailed enough to be too specific. But there are references like the one you read in 21 and the one that I mentioned in 22. And by the way, I see Revelation 20 as describing the millennial kingdom and Revelation 21 yep. and 22, the eternal state, as Stuart yep. has indicated. So that's beyond history, 21 and 22, a new creation of a new heavens and a new earth after the old heavens and the old earth have been dis destroyed as a result of Second Peter 3. Throwing a lot of scriptures at you, but <laughs> this will uh, get you going. Janie, did you have a comment? I just had a question. Um, at the end of the uh, tribulation, um, there will possibly be children. Is that correct? So that during 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 the tr no, well, there'll be children throughout. Yeah, but during the millennial there's, kingdom, there'll be there'll be children. Right. And there, there's a clear reference to that. Isaiah, right. I that. Hmm? would there be um, children going? You know, from the tribulation going into that would survive. To go into the millennium. Only if they're believers. Really? Okay. Um, little two-year-olds, really? <laughs> well, I don't know. No, okay. There's no verse. 
But if you want a verse that references children in the millennial kingdom, look up Isaiah 65, 20. We won't look it up, but I'll let you look it up. Renew that one, but okay, thank you. Somebody read 1 Corinthians 15, 27 and 28. This is the end of world history. And notice ultimate subjection to the Father. Who's got it? Everybody. I do. Okay, go ahead, uh, Mary, Lee. Mary Lee. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. That's Jesus. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be also subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Okay. So the whole goal, that's the goal of world history. That's the goal of God's plan to be all in all. In other words, all glory will uh, be attributed to God himself. And notice even Christ, even with, remember we talked about within the Trinity, there's a hierarchy, not a diminishing inequality, but even an eternal hierarchy, Father, Son, and you might even include Holy Spirit. And here's one of the verses that indicate that. Katie. Yes. Um, my question is that the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostle names, that that's in the eternal state. That's... Is there anything, I'm forgetting from eschatology, is there anything to do with the 12 tribes of Israel in the millennium, or is that more the eternal state? No, I think they have a place in the millennium as well. Okay. Yeah, that Daniel, look up Daniel 7.27. I think that's one of them. You might also look up uh, Isaiah 32.1. I think it's Old Testament saints. Daniel 727, and what was the other one? Isaiah 32.1. There's lots of passages, by the way. Okay. 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 Any other questions before we move on from here? Nate, you had You might be thinking about, um, like, Luke 22, 28 to 30, where Jesus talks about the 12 apostles will rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah. Uh, I would put that in the... Millennium. Yeah, that's an interesting passage. Yeah. And also the there's the Matthew, let's see, what is it? I think it's Matthew eighteen or somewhere in there. Yeah, there's a parallel passage of that Luke passage. Matthew nineteen twenty eight. Nineteen twenty eight, that's it. Where he says, At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes. Right. And by way of implication, I see that as the reason that Judas had to be replaced in Acts chapter 1. Oh, okay. Paul is, Paul is not the replacement. So, though, though, though some of the apostles were brothers, um, they could have come from a blend of two, like two different tribes or something to... Um, I represent the no, 12 tribes ultimately? No, I don't think they necessarily had to have tribal relationships because of the very point you're making. 
by virtue of being selected as apostles, even though they were brothers, they are given a position and it probably, you know, if they happen to be of the tribe of Judah, they might, one of them may reign over it, etc. But yeah, I don't, I think it's, it's by virtue of being one of the 12, not by virtue of their bloodlines. Their bloodlines. Okay, great. Thank you. And, you know, this is all, uh, we don't have a verse that says that. It's just kind of concluding from all of the verses that we have. Well, I spent more time on that than I intended, but let's at least start off with the next passage. Any other comments? Geneva, you had a comment. Yeah, getting back to the replacement of Judas. Uh, I'm making a, a criticism of your theology that okay. you're Okay. Replacement theology. No, 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 no. It's not replacement theology. Yeah, replacement theology. You believe in replacement theology with the replacement of Judas. <laughs> out of context. Terribly out of context. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, my sister likes to joke with me. Anyway, chapter 13 begins a new paragraph in verse 8, and I title 1 through 7, Submission to Authority, dealing primarily with government. And now, beginning in verse 8, we have the summation of love. So, verse 8 starts off with the scope of love, and let's get into that passage. Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now, before we get into the details of that, let me read uh, the other two passages, and I want you to notice something, because it'll help us to understand what Paul is doing in these verses. And I think the first phrase there has been uh, misunderstood. In fact, even in my early Christian life, I don't think I had a full understanding. Well, obviously, I didn't have a full understanding of a lot of things, but particularly this passage. But let me read the rest of it. For this, after he talks about he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law, for this, referring to this love in terms of neighbor, uh, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up. And that's where I get the kind of the broader title for my paragraph here. Summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So a second reference there to loving one's neighbor. And then notice, I think 10 is somewhat parallel to 8 and 9. Love does no wrong to his neighbor. And he, in verse 9, he's listed the wrongs that the old nature tends toward. And so he's kind of summarizing that. And then he says, love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Going back to verse 8, kind of tying it all together. So I think what Paul is doing here is he is transitioning to a new concept a concept from submission to authority to loving 
the you might say the citizens of the the culture and when he says oh nothing to anyone it's kind of a transition linking uh, we owe the civil authorities we owe the government taxes we looked at that last time pay your taxes it is like a debt and kind of in transition owe nothing to anyone except to love now, the reason I'm bringing this out is I think this passage sometimes is misapplied to the idea of debt when it says, oh, nothing to anyone. In fact, the word essentially means that in most contexts. I don't think that's the stress that he has here. I don't think, for example, in fact, at one time I uh, interpret this as meaning that you should not maintain any credit. In other words, credit was outlawed by this verse. I think it's reading too much into the verse. And there's a few reasons for that. And this may be as far as we can get today in terms of uh, this passage. But so let's, let's look at some passages that refer to this whole idea of debt to kind of get the conclusion, get to the conclusion that this is not prohibiting all, and it's not absolutely eliminating all debt. Now, it's a transition from the debt of government to, by way of analogy, we owe, from God's perspective, you might say, to love one another. And he's going to give some reasons for that. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then he's going to expand upon that in the following uh, two verses. So let's take a look at this concept, the issue of debt, and look up some passages. Debt seems to be permitted in the Old Testament, and if it's permitted in the Old Testament, it may not be totally unacceptable, you might say, or not permitted uh, totally. Somebody look up Exodus twenty-two twenty-five, and someone else, Psalm thirty-seven twenty-six, And there's other passages as well for your own notes if you want to Let's see, did I have another? Deuteronomy, you might read Deuteronomy 15.7 as well, uh, or just jot that in your notes. Who's got Exodus 22.25? You got it? No, what was the Deuteronomy passage I was just asking? Oh, 15.7. Thank you. 22.25. Yeah, go ahead, Katie. Katie, yeah, 22.25. And Connie, since you got your mic open, why don't you do Psalm 37.26? Okay. Okay. Katie. I got the NIV I got the NIV in front of me. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender. Charge him no interest. Okay. Now if you do, it's not saying do not, and there's other similar passages that seem to indicate that it's permissible. Now, what he's arguing against in the Exodus passage is, in that case, in the context of somebody that is in poverty, don't charge them interest. Now, there's other passages that seem to indicate that you can even charge interest, but in some situations, you want to not charge interest. In fact, in some versions, it talks about usury, and usury is not interest in general, but excessive interest. 
like what is described there in terms of the tendency of some tax collectors, you might say. So if you can uh, lend, and it's permissible, you can lend, obviously, to another fellow Jew or another believer, you might say, and it doesn't omit the lending to them. So in general, it permits it, if you will. It's not prohibiting it. What it's prohibiting is the excessive interest. Psalm thirty-seven twenty-six. Connie, do you get that one? Uh, yeah, Psalm 37 is talking about the steps of a good man, and verse 26 says, He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Okay, he lends, so he permits, and it's not saying he can lend to the unbeliever only, and in fact, in the context, in general, the first people that you would lend to are those that are closest in association, so it would include fellow Jews, so it's not it can't prohibit a fellow Jew from borrowing and at the same time permit one Jew from uh, lending. So, and there's other passages as well. But notice what Jesus says as well. Who wants to do uh, Matthew 5.42? Sharon's got that one. Uh, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Okay. And again, similar the Old Testament, we could make the same comment. If it's permissible to lend, uh, he has two things, giving and lending. And in Matthew 5, obviously it's still a Jewish situation. If it's permissible to lend to a fellow Jew, then uh, it's not prohibiting that fellow Jew from uh, borrowing. And certainly it's, it's permitting it. So, I don't think this passage, uh, I guess the bottom line here, and there's other passages if we had more time. Now, certainly, I think the scriptures and there's other passages we could look up, but I don't want to get into the details there. The main point I want to make here is I don't think this passage, there are some that would take this passage in that way and would say that anytime that you use a credit card or anytime you go into debt, even for your home, those sort of things that uh, you're going against scripture. And that's the only point I wanted to make. Now, there is illegitimate debt, I think, for things that go beyond needs, for example, or as a result of careless spending, perhaps simply for luxurious things or for our comfort. I think those things I think we we need to be more careful. And there's other principles that we would apply in terms of indebtedness. Ray? Yes. This is Mary Lee. Yes. So that, in some sense, redefines what we are to do with whatever wealth the Lord gives us. Because uh, it constantly stresses how gracious and open-handed the Father is to us. Yes, and so, therefore, it, it sort of redefines what, the, what, what is the purpose for what you have. Uh, and, and so, we are, we are given so that we can help others. And yes. you don't just have to be, you don't necessarily have to just hand it out, you know, going along throwing dollars like our government does. Yes. But, but we are to help those who, who have needs we are to 
because the Lord has blessed us, we are to help others and bless others with what we have. You know, repaying is, is a good thing, but we can certainly help them. Yes. Yeah. In with, some situations. Without, yeah. In without some, charging them. Yeah. In okay. some, in some situations. The whole is covered in that in Luke 6, 34 through 5. If you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what thanks have ye for sinners? Lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great. You shall be children of the highest, for he is kind to be unthankful and evil. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The point I'm making is Romans thirteen eight does not prohibit absolutely lending, if you will. That's kind of the point I'm making. Jim, did you have a comment? Yeah, well, Proverbs uh, 19.17, kind of long, lines with Mary Lee saying, He who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deeds. Uh, there's a, a good example of what Mary Lee's talking about, I think. But there, And there's another one that I think is really very important uh, for us uh, today in our culture, and that is, and, and I was looking for it, and I can't remember where it is. Maybe you do, but the the borrower be, becomes uh, the slave. Yeah, the slave or in bondage to the lender, and uh, so I think it, you know there's really a place to be careful about borrowing money. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There are illegitimate debts, and we need to be wise in the handling of money in all ways, but also wise in uh, terms of knowing when to lend and even charge interest and knowing when to lend without expecting even repayment. Proverbs 22.7 was Jim's reference. Okay. And Jim, Jim, what was your first Proverbs reference? Oh, it was uh, Proverbs 19.17. Thank you. Okay. And the point I'm making here, this is a transition in the context, not specifically addressing the issue of debt here, but more a transition. You have obligations to the government, and now you have an obligation to fellow believers. And when it says, oh, nothing to anyone, it's not this absolute never going into debt, never uh, entering into this issue of credit. It's a transition or a link between the two passages to stress this whole idea. And now he's going to talk about loving one another. So he's moved from submitting to government, that's a relationship overall, to now this broad and all-encompassing love to one another. And we've pretty much run out of time and, yeah, uh, Ray? a transition from one topic to another topic to one uh, relationship to another relationship. It's something of a transition. Mary Lee. Uh, one of the things I see from this is that we pervert scripture if we apply owing nothing to anyone, only to money, because you can never have a debt and yet simply fall flat on your face with the rest of the command except to love one another. So it's it's a perversion and it's a focus on the wrong thing when we say, oh, but you can't have any 
financial debt right. and totally ignore the rest of the law, we become very pharisaical in what we do. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's the whole concept of love. In other words, it includes not just money, but love. You know, includes time, includes effort, includes uh, all the aspects that uh, are captured by the concept of love. Jim, Nate, go ahead. Since you just came coming from a context about paying taxes, do you think it's at least fair to say that Paul's affirming that we need to meet and pay our financial obligations? Yeah, I, I think in general, yeah. I, the, the main point I was just trying to make is it's not this absolute issue of debt, but I think, yes, we should. It says, oh, nothing to anyone. The encouragement is, is to fulfill your obligations. And like Mary Lee says, not just the financial ones, but whatever other promises that we have made or commitments that we have made, we need to fulfill those obligations. Owe nothing to anyone. Yeah, we could uh, talk some more on that, but I think because of the time, we'll come back and review verse 8 and easily get to verse 10 next time. Any other comments? Jim, you have your mic open. One more quick one, and then we'll get into the prayer time. No, I I just left my mic open because I'm old. Oh, okay. (laughs) We'll forgive you. (laughs) We'll exercise our obligation to forgive you there you go this is denise go ahead i think uh because uh the word love has been applied so liberally perhaps we could touch base on the aspects of love because even our father god loves us by disciplining us yeah we can do that next time we will we'll try to do that all righty who wants to close for us and Father God, we praise you as you've answered prayer for Hasiel as we prayed last week, how she was facing a life-threatening situation with the blood clot and the meningitis. And we thank you that she has been able to leave the intensive care and how she is doing better and speaking and moving and, and more aware and alert. And uh, thank you that she's going to be able to to continue as a mom and as a wife, and we pray you would provide for their financial needs and that continue to, to heal her on this long road. And, and just help us all, God, as we've learned today, to um, pursue love and to love others, that that would be the, the one obligation that, that we have that we can, can never meet completely is just to continue to reflect um, that love that God has shown us.